Hello, this is Christian Okoye, former Kansas City Chiefs. You are listening to Grilling Truth. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Grilling Truth NFL Legend Show, brought to you by Gridiron Mo, an interactive football app where you get to call what you think the offense or defense should do during a live NFL game and see what all other fans have called also. Check out Gridiron Mo at www.gridironmo.com. As always, I'm the host for the Grilling Truth Legend Show, Mike Goodpaster, and I want to welcome in my guest today, who was a member of maybe the greatest defense in college football history, 1985 Oklahoma Sooners. Went on to win two Super Bowls with the Dallas Cowboys. Help me welcome to the show, Tony Casillas. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I will say this, you're a great follower on Twitter, and uh, I love the tag, really true. <laughs> oh, well, thanks a lot. And I think we did an article about your Sooners, too. I think we had them in the top five. You know what? Someone actually, uh, I, I was, uh, I, I saw that, and automatically, I always, uh, always try to follow uh, the Sooners, and then kind of, kind of look and see how old I actually am now. And uh, I, I was uh, going to give you props for that. Mention that uh, that defense. Uh, been so long ago, but uh, there's some vivid memories I, I have on that team. We're uh, a great football team, and uh, it's something I always uh, remember. Okay, what what made you decide to go to Oklahoma out of high school? Well, that's a great question because I, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. I was recruited pretty heavily, and you know, back then, and when I was getting recruited, you took all your visits. Uh, I did, anyways. Uh, first time I ever flown in an airplane, so I wanted to take advantage of everything I could get. Uh, you know, whining and dining every every place uh, that you visited, and. Uh, you know, I took, I believe I took seven visits. Uh, but interesting, uh, you know, when you grew up in Oklahoma, especially during that era, back in the, uh, you know, late 70s and in the 80s, you know, Oklahoma football was it. And so we all, you automatically think that, you know, you're going to end up going to the team that's in your backyard, right? Uh, and I mean, why not? I mean, Oklahoma was just a dynasty then. And so when I did go through all the, the, the recruiting I went to, you know, took the UCLA, Notre Dame, and then uh, Arkansas. I mean, I, 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 mean, <laughs> I, uh, I, I didn't uh, – parents didn't have a lot of money, so I was going to take advantage of every trip I got. So I'm saying that, it actually came down to Texas. And, uh, you know, people – it's so funny to come full circle now. My son actually goes to UT, but people give me so much – you know, they give me a hard time about that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, actually it was between Texas and Oklahoma. And I, I think the, the biggest uh, – the biggest selling point is when I did visit Texas. I mean, they always brainwash you every place you go. You come back, and you know that's the, you know, it's what have you done for me lately as far as uh, the dog and pony show. And so certainly when I went to Texas, I mean, why can't you know why wouldn't you left Texas? I mean, it's a beautiful place. There's a lot going on, and the only thing that I had is that uh, is that I was uh, you kind of you became a betrayer if you did that. So yeah. uh, you know when I came back from Texas. Uh, I have singing eyes of Texas upon you. Uh, Switzer caught wind that I committed to Texas. And then he just, it just took a phone call for him to, like, sway me and put this charismatic uh, way he puts things and said, hey, uh, Tony, you need to come down here and help me win some national championships. And I said, all right, I'm done. <laughs> all right, so you talk about Barry Switzer. What was your relationship like with him, and what was he like to play for? Well, you know, Barry Switzer is, uh, you know, to me, he's a guy that is so funny because I remember when he got divorced from his wife, he said, you know what, I can, I can divorce, uh, I can do, divorce uh, my wife, but I can't be, 
I can't uh, divorce UMS. Uh, and he, when he was saying that, he was he was saying how much his players love it, and that's very true. I mean, his relationship with his players once they get out and once they continue to go and, and lead the game of football, he's a phone call away. And you know, my relationship at first wasn't the best relationship because I was like any other kid that, that gets recruited and you, you go to the University of a high, you know, a place where you're being heavily recruited and you're thinking, I, I'm, my, my stink does you know, I, I don't stink, you know, my crap doesn't stink. And, and you lose, you lose sight of that, that they're telling that to every kid they recruit. So then obviously you get there and you're not, uh, you're not the, you're, you're not the, the guy. Uh, there's a lot of guys. And you know, for me, it was very, it was a struggle. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, if it wasn't for Switzer, I don't know if I would have, I would have been where I am now because I actually left campus and was going to quit, and he, he taught me into coming back, and, and I owe a lot to him. But my relationship resonates uh, greatly. Again, it's, uh, you know, he has thousands of kids and thousands of players that just love him, and uh, he's always there for you. So I think we all had that unconditional love for each other. Yeah, and as you said, you had a difficult start to your college football career. Did a little research, showed that you had to redshirt as a freshman, suffered a broken ankle, contracted mononucleosis, and the next year you played sparingly at defensive tackle. What was the thing that really put you over top, I guess, your junior year when they moved you to nose tackle? I don't know. I think this, uh, this, the light switch just came on, and I think the most frustrating thing about when you make a transition is that you know things start to slow down a little bit. Um, you compartmentalize things differently. Uh, I wasn't the best student, um, so I kind of become more uh, more dimensional. Uh, you know, I, when I got there, I was just a football player, but I didn't realize other things that come along with that. And so I think I was very able to decipher through all that. And then I think that I just, I really just kind of, we kind of started. You know, the weight room. I was a big weight room rat. Uh, I had the, the ability, but. I just uh, – I had great coaching. I mean, I, I think for me is that I became technique-oriented to the, the detail that it just got it, – it, it favored me because I I was powerful, but then, yet I was quick, I was concise, and I just realized, you know, getting in the, getting in the weight room and studying and doing those type of things, it just kind of came – become slower. And I think that's any, – any kid that makes a transition, you start seeing things slower, things start slowing down, and then it just clicks. And – uh you know, I was able to parlay that, and I had some great guys that I patterned myself after as far as, you know, how they work on the field and in the, in the weight room and in, in, the, in the film study. And I think that that's some things and tangible things they don't tell you about. And so I think that's really what made me get me the transition and gave me uh, the confidence because if you don't have confidence and it's really hard to uh, go through uh, – go through college, not only that, go through college, and just being able to be a great athlete. And I, that was, to me, that was when the switch came on. All right, now, 1985, you guys had Troy Aikman as your quarterback, actually, which I think a lot of people forget. He got hurt and a loss to Miami of Florida. You guys had to go with Jamel Holloway, who was actually a true freshman quarterback. I mean, what was that time like for the team? Was there any doubt Holloway could do it, or did you guys have confidence in him? Well, it's so funny. And I see Troy. It's uh, I always ask everyone this question. It's a great question. Uh, who's the only Big Twelve quarterback or the Big A player that's uh, a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame? And every I think it gets lost in translation when you look at when you look at uh, 
you know, Troy was – people forget he was there. Uh, but I just remember that vividly. Uh, he's running uh, running an option. And then and then uh, and I believe Jerome Brown came up on him and broke his ankle, and the rest was history. And then, you know, I don't think anyone expected Jamal Holloway to come in and win eight straight games a true freshman because because it, it, it just doesn't happen too often. But in saying that, he was so athletic. I mean, it was so uh, – when you look at it now, and I kid Troy about this, see him running the wishbone, uh, a white guy running the wishbone, it was kind of interesting <laughs> to, uh, to see that. Uh, but, you know, Troy was very athletic. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, he was more of a prototype quarterback in his career. But, you know, Jamal, I mean, that was more – that's more catered to style. We ran downhill. Uh, he was very quick and just made good decisions and – and we didn't have to throw the football a whole lot. So I think that that's just, uh, just the fact that he was just athletically so above everyone at that position. That's what made the transition so, so well. And, then, you know, if you don't, you don't have a guy like him, then you probably don't win a national championship. Yeah. And then also it really helps a freshman quarterback to have a defense like you guys had. Do you want to talk a little bit about your defense and the guys that were on that? I know a lot of people think of Brian Bosworth and yourself, but it was more than just you two. Well, it was. It certainly was, and I think that you know it's well documented that uh, you know Brian was the was the ass on the team, and and I think the people that uh, that, that play with him, I mean, certainly with me, and and this is thirty years ago. I, I don't, I never held a grudge against anyone. I just, I just think that his annex kind of overshadowed everything, everyone else that was on that team, and uh, collectively, you look at this across the board, our speed. Uh, and you alluded to it in your article as far as looking at statistics about how I mean, we played Texas and they didn't get over, they didn't get past the 50 yard line. Um, I mean, there were certain instances where our defense was just our offense. But I, I think if you look across the board, uh, you know, our defensive line, uh, Steve Bryan, I mean uh, Jeff Tupper. You know, I, I don't think I don't think uh, you know Brian was the best best uh, linebacker on that team. I think Dante Jones and and Daryl Reed and, and Troy Johnson uh, was probably more of an impact than anything. So um, I was uh, – I think that our speed and, – and I think when you look at the front seven, you look at the front four, um, we were so dominating. And our job is to keep our linebackers protected. And although we didn't get all the headlines and people didn't get all the headlines, we were very well coached and very, very disciplined. And I think that's what made our team so be- so good and – and we, we we played pissed off. I mean, we we, we took pride in not letting people get first downs. And I think a lot of teams they don't they don't have that type of uh, mentality anymore because the game has changed. But I mean, that's how we play. It's like, look, you know, we're going to bully you, we're going to bloody you up. At the end of the day, you're going you're going to know that you, you played a defense like our, ours, and you're going to be talking about it for a long time. All right, now, 1985, you guys ended up beating Penn State to win a national championship. But before that game, you want to talk a little bit about the Oklahoma-Nebraska rivalry? Well, it's so sad today that there isn't, uh, there isn't an, uh, that game because that, to me, was the marquee matchup. Uh, that was the marquee matchup when you look at, you know, obviously OU Texas was, but that was a, that was a rivalry within, our, within the conference. And, we go there, they come here, and, and there was so much history to that. And I remember so many games were decided by a goal line stand here, uh, a fumble here, um, just determine which team was going to play in the Orange Bowl. So um, 
I think for me, the Texas game was so was was a marquee signature game because of what it stood for. Oklahoma versus the Texas, the border matchup, but Nebraska, that's where it came down. It came down who was going to go to the Orange Bowl, who ultimately was going to play the national championship, and that was measured every time in that game. And so you take that away, it's, it's not the same now in the Big 12 because they divided all these divisions. But for us, that was such a we, – we knew every year you circle that game, you're going to be playing for something when it comes in December. All right, now, you, you, like we said, you guys beat Penn State for the national championship in the Orange Bowl. What do you remember about that game? <laughs> well, I think I remember when you look at the whole scheme of that, uh, you, you look at uh, the year before, because the year before is when we got embarrassed by by the – Washington. Oh, yeah. they embarrassed the hell out of us. And Pay for a story there. You know, I'm friends with Joe Kelly, the guy that went out and threatened the Boomer Schooner. He's always talking about that. Got a picture on his wall about it. Well, yeah, and then certainly that game right there, I don't think that we really took that – we took that game for granted. And it was uh, not only the coaches, bad job by our coaches, but our players. We went there, we partied, we had a good time, and we just felt like, you know, we were so good. And Washington, they weren't, they weren't reading any of our – they weren't reading any of our uh, – I guess uh, press clippings. They weren't impressed, and so I think that we—that's where it kind of really just kind of resonated because we knew next year when we went to the Orange Bowl. I mean, Switzer, you talk about someone that, that, that people talk—they say that you know Switzer doesn't—he's a player's coach, but you don't want to piss him off because he was mad, and he said, you know what? I remember him vividly telling us, like, you guys screwed it up last year. I'm going to take. I'm going to take responsibility for this, win or lose. And we ended up actually going there early and having two days. Uh, and we're like, wow, we are, we are going to focus on this game. And, and so I remember that and just the preparation. I, probably, I think that's probably the most preparation I've ever had on a Switzer coach team was that when we went and uh, we played, we won a national championship. But obviously, you know, Penn State, that was a tremendous uh, – you had two teams. You had Joe Paterno, and then you had, you know, Switzer, two different personalities. Uh, <laughs> you look at them, and they're, they're, so ultra, they're just so opposite, polar opposites when you look at that. Um, and so it was just uh, – it was almost – it was a slugfest. And, you know, it was a team that was going to try to run the football, and and uh, fortunately we were able to make a lot of big plays and, and uh, were able to, to not screw that game up. All right, then we go to 1986. Uh, sure, your dream, at least from high school on up, was probably to play in the NFL. What was draft day like for you in 1986? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't like uh, it is now uh, with, with all the, the focus on the NFL, but it was to me it was just as important because, you know, here's the thing about it. Is everyone tells you that you're going to be, you're going to be drafting in the NFL, and you see it every year. Some kids, they're, they're telling every kid he's going to be a number, you know, a, first-round draft pick, and they're still sitting there. So nothing's nothing best in stone. Uh, you don't know until you get the phone call. Uh, I was back in Norman, and they didn't, they didn't invite every – they didn't invite 32 picks to New York City. Uh, they didn't have social media. They didn't have a lot of things. And so it wasn't sensationalized. It was a big deal, don't get me wrong. But uh, I, I ended up just staying in Norman with the family and friends. And, and so uh, – Bo Jackson was the first player picked in which I knew that Tampa Bay was going to draft him. And so he ended up 
playing baseball, but, uh, you know, I, I got the call and I, I was, I just like, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, it was just one of those surreal moments where you got the opportunity to not only play in the NFL, but to be the second player picked in the draft. And, uh, I just, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, if someone had told me growing up that I'd had the chance to be the playing in the NFL, I would have said, you know what, that's every kid's dream. But to, but to be the number two pick, it was just overwhelming. And, uh, and that's, that's the great thing about the draft. It never changes that because every kid has that desire and dream to play in the NFL, and so few get an opportunity to play in it. Yeah, and you get to your first training camp. Um, what were some of the differences between the NFL, NCAA football, and also was there anybody that kind of took you under their wing to help you out? Well, um, I, I, I was lucky because I went, I went to, to Atlanta, and, and during that that time frame, it was the it was the doormat of the NFL. You had, I believe, the Falcons of four and twelve. I mean, there's a reason why if you're drafted high in the in the in the first round, that, that team's not going to be very good. That's the uh, that's the bad part of it. Um, but I mean, Rick Bryan was there, and then uh, Scott Case were there, so there was some familiarity there. But you know what? No one can really tell you how to handle the NFL. And certainly it's changed a lot, but uh, there's a lot of pressure on you. And I always put a lot of pressure. I I had a lot of anxiety going into camp and, you know, how I was going to play. And, you know, I held out and, and uh, you know, how I was going to make the transition. And, again, when I, when I alluded to about, the you know, changing the college, you know, from high school, it's all about the speed of the game. But I just remember the first guy I lined up against was uh, – was an all-pro and, uh, and a Hall of Famer now, Dwight Stevenson. And, and I held out, and I was in training camp, and we go through one-on-one drills, and he throws me down three days, three times in a row, and I'm thinking, is this what it, uh, every player is like? And <laughs> so he baptized me and just knocked me on my ass a few times, and I got back up. And I think the, the thing that really told me, that, that really helped me, is that he told me, he said, hey, rookie, Rome wasn't built in one day. And I'm like, well – Hopefully it'll be built uh, in the next month because I don't not like this transition. Yeah. But you know, that's one thing about the NFL. These guys are—they've seen it. They've been there. They've been there, done that. Uh, they see—they see everything. They've been. You take a—you take a player that's been in the league for six or seven years. He's gone through all the the learning curve that you've gone through, all the aches and pains, the bumps and bruises that you transition, and they've seen it all. And then. Unless you're just one of these gifted, athletically gifted guys, and it's it makes it difficult. But um, again, after I think the transition of having some familiarity with some guys that played at Oklahoma, and just you know, it's hard for me because we lost. Uh, I believe we lost 26 games in the first three years, and I'm like, when I was at Oklahoma, we lost. We won in Atlanta. We won as many games as I lost during my career there, and that was and that was that was very uh, that really humbling and really brought me to a place where this is not really what I thought the NFL was about. Yeah, the money's good, but uh, look, after a while, you you it's like any job. You're like, why am I just doing this for the money? And I guess I was a little get I went against that. Uh, wasn't the conventional way of handling things because I thought, well, there's got to be a there's got to be an environment where it's positive and not everything's about well 
least I'm getting a paycheck. And uh, I think that was the hardest thing for me to overcome. And ultimately, that's probably what uh, got me out of Atlanta. Well, see, you just killed my next question, too, because I was going to ask you it had to be tough. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> but um, so you get to trade to Dallas. Um, Jimmy Johnson was the coach there. You got there right as he was turning things around. Um, what was it like being in Dallas as compared to Atlanta, and what was Jimmy Johnson like to play for? Well, uh, the way I equate it to is I hated I hated training camp. I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie about that. But who who lo- who likes training camp? Um, but I remember when I uh, I, I told uh, I told Jerry Glanville I told him I said you know what I'm gonna retire because I I just I didn't fit in. I had five coaches in five years and I just felt like I needed a change. I didn't know if that was going to happen, but it and it sure turned out that way. And so I remembered when I when I was finally traded to when I was finally reta- traded to uh, to Dallas. And it was just like uh, a burden was uh, lifted off me, and and so I ended up flying into Austin. And, and you got to remember, it was training camp was brutal. I mean, it's 105 degrees in the shade there. Yeah, and I actually off hit plane. back then in training camp. Oh shoot! It, it was just it was old it was old school. I mean, we're talking about just two days, and we're talking two hour practices, and it was just a different mentality, different different era. And I remember getting off the plane, and I had the biggest smile on my face. Not only not only the fact that I was coming to Dallas, and I, I grew up watching the fall in Dallas, but you know, I, I got to admit, I wasn't the be- the biggest fan, but. Just to go to an environment where that star meant something, that the circus was always in town, regardless of what you know the record was. There was a lot that went with the star, and then you know he had Jimmy Johnson, and I remember him calling me and said, "Hey, we're going to trade for you." And then uh, and then Dave Wanstead was the defensive coordinator. He recruited me out of high school, and he was at Oklahoma State. Collectively, had all these all these coaches were on staff, and so I just like, man, this is great. I mean, this is. Give me some energy. This is, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not even, I, I'm not even having any anxiety about going to training camp. I want to practice, you know, because I just felt like that if there was a, there was this amount of uh, energy. I, I got the passion back to play football, uh, and regardless of what our record was going to be, um, that that reignited my career, and I just, uh, I, I just felt like it was in a more positive environment. Yeah, and you guys make the playoffs immediately, which you never did in Atlanta. <laughs> I think you guys ended up losing to Detroit. Then you get to the 92 season. You want to talk a little bit about what made that team great? I mean, you had the triplets. You had Irvin. You had Aikman. You had Emmett Smith. Um, what was it like to play with those guys? You had guys like Ken Norton on defense. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, um, you know, the playoffs, uh, I, I didn't even know. That was a foregone conclusion. I, I, what's playoffs? and, and like a Jim Moore when after the people want to talk about play, I didn't know how to spell that, and um, it was just it, it was just wasn't part of my vocabulary because I was in Atlanta for five years and just we were always on a trip or playing golf somewhere when playoffs came around. But um, I think I think Barry uh, Barry Sanders is the one that really kind of motivated us because when we beat Chicago and then we beat we got beat by them in in, in Detroit. I mean, he made us look silly. Um, they ran all over us that day, and we just—I think we learned a lot about that. You know, we were close, but we were—we just weren't there, quite. And 
our defense got better the next year. Obviously, our offense got another year under the belt. Uh, everyone started maturing. Our offensive line became better. Uh, so I think we've learned a lot from that because there's a lot of games that you got to win during the, uh, during the playoffs, or excuse me, during the regular season that we didn't close out. So um, that game really resonated with us. And it, it started in the off season. It started when we were in training camp. And, you know, Jimmy, God bless him, Jimmy was the greatest coach, but he did not like losing. I mean, he was so – his brain and his emotion is so wrapped up into what, uh, whatever agenda it was. His agenda was our agenda. Our agenda was his agenda because that's what, that's what it represented. And he was so made it so uncomfortable for us to, for us to lose and uh, for us to to not win. And I just remember when we this is during this is in ninety ninety two when we went to the Super Bowl during the preseason and this is during training camp. We had a preseason game. And our special teams was atrocious. I mean, it was horrible. So the next day, we go, to, we go back to Austin training camp. And he, gets, he, he tells everybody up, and he goes, I am so upset. You know, the way you guys played on special teams, not, not only are the special team players going to do rep after rep, the whole team is going to be on, running special teams. So I swear to God, I think the only person that wasn't running down on kickoff and kickoff return was Trey. Everyone else was running down the field. I'm, I, across the board, it didn't matter. Everyone was out there running kickoff teams. You're bad in kickoff team, all right. Offensive line, defensive line, defense, offense, everyone's running. Emmett Smith, whoever. And we did that. And we did that for, I don't, it seemed like uh, for an hour. And guess what? We were better in the special teams because that was the way Jimmy ran, ran, ran his team. And, so I think that that was things like that because he felt we, – we, we felt so uncomfortable about losing. And everyone was kind of uh, – whether you're a franchise player, I think there was this, always this insecurity that you're, you weren't doing a good enough job. There wasn't this complacency that some, of these, some guys had. It's like Jimmy was right there and he's watching you. And I think that that's what really, that's what really kind of uh, really resonated deep inside in everyone's soul that – that that was uh, Jimmy's footprint, and his thumb was on everything that 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 he uh, that we needed to accomplish uh, that to be a, a championship football team. Now, '92, I'd say the signature game for that team probably would be the '92 championship game at San Francisco. You want to talk a little bit about that game? That was probably the biggest moment that I've ever had in, in my football life. Um, besides having Besides having my kids and you know being married to my beautiful wife, she's exercising right here. I don't think she's never been. <laughs> no. yeah, you got to make uh, sure you bring that up just in case she hears it. Though I know how that is. No, I, I think that in my football life and just being able to just go that go-to moment that you have in your life that it doesn't matter how old you are, uh, how gray you are, how fat you are, uh, it doesn't matter. It was that moment that you go back in time and, and you think about, well, this is what it's about. Because you got to remember, if you go back to 92, no one gave us a chance. We were the heavy underdog, and we, we went out to San Francisco playing against a team like Steve Young, Jerry Rice, and, uh, you know, all this, this great, you know, this great historical franchise. And go on the road and have to do what we did was, uh, was unbelievable because 
uh, I think we were just mature enough to handle it. We were probably almost like the kid that didn't know any better, but we yeah. were, were really good. And, again, it, it, it came down to being well coached, pay attention to detail, not making mistakes. And I remember they turned the ball over uh, a few times. Uh, we got some big plays in that game, went back and forth. Emmett had a great day, the offensive line. You know, Steve Young did what he needed to do, but we, we were able to make the big plays and get interceptions, and I think we, we shocked the world. I don't think anyone in that in that building thought that we'd go in there and beat them like we did. And then, of course, after the game's over, you're sitting around, you're, just, you're sitting there looking at each other, and you know, you know what? You're like, did we just win the NFC Championship game? Are we actually going to the Super Bowl? And you're like, it's, it's, it's like almost like someone has to, how corny it says, someone has to pinch you. Or I don't want the dream to end because I want this to be true. And, and and to me, that was like the biggest moment to look around a bunch of guys. And I was only there for two years. And, and you know, for my own, uh, I guess, selfish reasons, like everyone else, is like, you know what, this is what football is all about. And to be able to go to the Super Bowl and, and have the opportunity to, and win on the road under, you know, under all these heavy odds that, you get, that weren't going to get there, um, it was just, uh, to me, it just seemed like an impossible dream. All right, now, was it anticlimactic, the Super Bowl? Was it hard to get up for that game after the San Francisco game? Oh, no. Um, here's the thing about the Super Bowl, what I've learned, and I think the, the Buffalo Bills will tell you that, to get there and not be able to, to win the football game, uh, because everyone, there's a reason that they get Super Bowl rings out to people. Uh, one, they're very hard to win. And two, you never know when you're going to get there. And I know for Buffalo, I, 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 can, only, I can only just imagine what they've gone you're going to four Super Bowls and not have anything to, to show for it. And, you know, for us, it was, again, I, we were a young team, and I, the whole notion that you're too young, you know, you, you, you don't have any experience, so you know how to handle yourself, uh, to me, that's just a bunch of, that's great uh, sports radio talk um, because yeah. the bottom line is that you have a great leader, you have good players, and I think that you'll be able to handle the moment. Now, you can't, when you want to actually play in that game, you can't handle them. Uh, you, you can't explain the emotions. You've got to just let that just kind of, you got to let that just take care of itself. And then after that, then you like, okay, well, I'm, I'm back on the ground. Um, we're in the Super Bowl. We made it. Now let's just go out and play football. And then after that, everything starts to get back to normalcy. Um, and and for us, I mean, we were so good. I think defensively, we didn't. Our credit, all our credit went to the how great our offense was, and rightly so because those guys are great Hall of Famers. But our defense could ball. We had that platoon of our defensive line. You're talking about Russell Maryland, Chad Henning. Uh, Leon Lett, Jimmy Jones, Tony Colbert, Charles Haley. And we were just able to platoon and just knock people out in the fourth quarter. But, you know, Ken Norton, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, Woodson, uh, Kevin Smith, and collectively we were just able to hit on all cylinders. You hear that cliche all the time. But, I mean, when we're, when we're getting a pass rush, hey, the defensive backs are in the right place to get fixed. When they're getting covered sacks, as we, I mean, we just dominated the offensive side of the ball. I believe they had seven turnovers in that game, if my memory serves me right. 
And that's, yeah, what, and you, that's and how you, you look, win a big football game like that. Yeah, and you look at the two Super Bowls you guys played against the Bills. I mean, that was a high-powered offense, got Hall of Famers all over it. Two games, they averaged 15 points. Well, when they got – you know, see, to me, I know that we, when we knew going into that game that we had to put pressure on Jim Kelly, and we knocked him out of the game. And um, he just our, – our, our defense was just too – was too – too much of their offense, and we wore them out. Um, you know, Charles Haley is a reason why we brought him in '92 uh, is because he was such a great, he was a, a, a great force, and and even coming off the edge with him and Tony Colbert. I mean, Tony Colbert to me is is a guy that didn't get the respect he deserves because to me, uh, I think collectively and um, uh, overall, is probably one of the, the greatest defensive linemen I've ever seen play the game because not only did he play the run, he was a great pass rusher. And to me, he was kind of underrated, but uh, maybe a little bit overachiever. But um, but that, I think that that's what we did. I mean, we, we assaulted and stopped Thurman Thomas. I mean, we just – we we uh, we smothered them. That second half, we just blew them out. And and Frank Wright, I believe, came, he was, he came in and we just – we continue to punish them, and that's uh, well. They got to the point where they said, "You know what? We can't, we can't compete with these guys. They're too good." Yeah, and I, I would imagine for you, your toughest games were probably in practice against that Cowboys offensive line. Yeah, I think my toughest, my toughest uh, people ask me, "Who was the toughest guy you played against?" Well, I said, oh, well, I practice against them every day. Eric Williams. Um, uh, Step now, uh, Mark Stepnowski, um, Nate Noon, Larry Allen. I mean, you watch a guy bench press 750 pounds, and you got to go <laughs> practice against him. <laughs> I, I well, you know you're not going to push pull him, Tony. Oh no, I'm just saying. I'm like, look, you know, all right, Larry, Larry, I don't, I don't want to make you mad. Just, I'll give you a look, and uh, but and then I practice over full speed, and. We used to have this nine-on-seven drill, and that was like the hardest part of practice. But it was all out. Uh, we'd go in the individual drill. And this is during the week. This is on Wednesday and Thursday. So if you could survive that, and nine-on-seven, it was all it was on. I mean, it was like assholes and elbows, whatever you want to say. We were just getting, I mean, it, it, we were getting it. And that set the tempo. Um, but those guys right there were the hardest players and I think that that's what made us so good is that we made each other better we weren't afraid you know we like look you know we're, we're in this together uh you know certainly the landscape of the NFL's changed with all the money and, and the salary cap and things you can do but you know that was our number one goal is to is to practice hard and we had Jimmy breathing out our throat if we if we had a bad practice and we'd start practice over this is during the eighth week of the season um so that's that's what we're used to, and we didn't know any better, and that's how we that's how we handle our business. So, what's your take on the NFL today? Um, I think it's safer than it's ever been. Um, I hear this. I get uh, one thing I get exhausted about hearing is that the game is is unsafe, and the reason why I say that. I think the thing about the NFL now is it's a better place to play is because there's a protocol when it comes to concussions. There's no way you can ever avoid the head trauma. It's a gladiator sport. But the thing that you can, you can really minimize is 
concussion protocol because you got to remember in our culture, uh, the NFL said they didn't they didn't know any better. Which you know, when you when you get a concussion and you can't remember the next day and you don't remember playing in the game, and there's something not right about that. Yeah. But we but we were we continued to play like gladiators. The only way that you could get us out of the game is cut our finger off. But I mean, we probably still play. Ask Ronnie Lott. And he cut part of his finger and they'll hop and even continue to play. That's what I was thinking so, when you said it, Tony. <laughs> what's that? That's what I was thinking when you said it, actually. Yeah. But, I, but you know, for me, uh, I have a son that plays football, and I'm, i got anxiety like anyone else. But uh, in the NFL, I think it's a better place. And I know that's gotten, you know, they were frivolous about some of the decisions they made, and rightly so, they've learned. Um, but they're going to try to get away with as much as they can because the bottom line is the product. And the product is the guy having to stay on the field and he may not remember things and the player, and they don't know. And like, okay, well, I'm coach, I'm fine. And like, I mean, we all, we all fall, we all fall to that. We all, we all are, are kind of weak when it comes to someone being that valiant about playing and it, of sport, it's a tough yeah. guy. Like, hey, you know, it, sometimes it's kind of hard to compartmentalize the reality of it. Are we thinking about someone 10 years from now? Are we thinking about the moment? And I think now they're thinking about more of the future, not just the moment because of losses. But I think the NFL, it's changed. It's, it's better for the players because, for one, and I wish they'd had us back in our dinosaur days, but they don't, they don't hit which is great. Training camp to me is just you get your work and, and but you're not beating up, you're beating each other up. Um, I think you got to detect that technical aspect is probably not as good as it used to be. But I think it depends on where you're at because speed and, and athleticism oversees everything. But when, I, when you do get in the NFL, the coaches a little bit more, you know, pay attention to detail. But the NFL now, with the social media and guys trying to get as many followers as they can, and some of the things that they're doing off the field is unprecedented. It should not happen. And uh, to me, I think it's gotten better because of just the public outcry, just just the fact the Shield has gotten a bad name. Yeah. Now, do you think it's unprecedented, or do you think that maybe in the 70s, 80s, the press just turned a blind eye to it? Well, I think it's a I think it's a, a combination of it. Um, I think we're learning more about with science and the everything to study. And, and one of the things that really bothers me, and especially on social media, is when let's say a former player like myself makes a comment about um, like I use I, I use the University of Oklahoma. Yeah, you know, I, I I I may or any fan base or make someone will make a make a point on social media and someone said, oh, that's so stupid. How many, how many times you cuss, concussions you get? Is, you, is that a result from CTE? And I'm thinking, wait a second. CTE is more than just some guy getting, you know, getting, having, being punched drunk. I mean, we're talking about guys that have died, guys that have taken brain, dead brain tissue. And that's the only reason, that's the only reason, reason we know more about the CTE. Yeah. And watching the movie like Concussion, and to me, that's, that's the hardest thing is because 70s and 80s, it was a wild west. I mean, look at it. I mean, the game, everything evolves. Everything, 
it's like it's like a communicate it's like technology look at technology from there to now i mean it's it's smarter it's 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 a lot more thorough everyone can use it and so it's changed but unfortunately when you're talking about someone's brain you're talking about guy just uh not being able to remember things it's a vicious hit the es you know the espn highlights i mean people like to watch that yeah nfl films has always glorified it well yeah and and they've gotten away from it because of that because they can't show that anymore because it's that's the reason why guys are in bad health guys that had suffered cpe so it's not something that uh that they're making it up. It's not something they have these lawsuits, this frivolous lawsuit people think that the reason why the NFL's, you know, players are suing the NFL is because they need the money. It's not that. And one thing that I do, and I'm very aware of, is that when you see, I was reading an article about Daryl Talley and some of the issues he has, or Jimmy Mann, all these guys that have gone through all this the realm of suffering CPE, you look at, you make a checklist of yourself. And it's uh, symptomatic. So you look at you look at uh, memory loss. You look at maybe anxiety, anger. And I look at myself and maybe you know I'm in my family. Maybe I'm, I have those results. I don't know, but it sure makes you feel a little bit more um, cognizant of that. And it makes you it kind of makes you think about I don't want to be one of those guys. And so yeah. when I when I talk to people, I said you know what, be, take it easy on the guys that it actually died from CT because it's not, it's not, it's not something that's being made up and, and it's nothing to, to, to joke about. Yeah. It's basically the composition of your brain being changed, which actually changes what that person or who that person is even. Yes, it does. And, um, we all get older. Um, you, my whole deal is that when you get to be in your fifties, you don't want to, you don't have the memory of an 85 year old. Because, I mean, yeah. that's just part of life. And maybe 85 years old, you're not going to lose your mind. I'm, not, I'm just throwing that out there. Remember how we used to say it was just part of being senile now? you got Alzheimer's, you got all this stuff. But, you know, your brain, and I don't know if you've seen concussion, your brain is not made to move around and be yeah. abused like that. And if, you, if, you're, if anyone's smart about it, hey, would I do it all over again? No. I mean, yes. I would do it all over again. Absolutely. Um. Would I feel safe about it? Yes. If I had someone to actually restrain me and tell me, look, Tony, you don't want to be out on the field. You need, to, you need to be on the sidelines. And if I knew more education about what's going on, um, then I would say, yeah, this, it's a better – that's what I said. I think that the NFL is a, is a safer place right now. Yeah, I, I think it definitely is. Unfortunately, I think it's just because it's been mandated on them from bad publicity. <laughs> well, yeah, they don't have any excuse. Now, you can just imagine if all this stuff didn't come out, probably still be doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the perfect example is Ray Rice. If there's no video of that, they suspend him two games and nothing ever happens. Right. Um, And then I look at him. He's out of the league. He can't find another job. Yeah, but you got Greg Hardy who did stuff to say, like, it might have been worse, but it wasn't on video, and he's still playing. Well, you know, and there's a lot of things that you can talk about that, and that gets back to just the character issue of football and the game itself. Um, and it's, it's kind of a you're contradicting yourself. You're, you're on the other hand, you want to try to make this better, where our image, where because I think every 
because players get tarnished. They get the stereotype, you know, with the whole Ray Rice and all the stuff that yeah. came out. All of a sudden, every player is like that in the NFL. No, that's not the case. You know this. It just takes a well, small. Yeah, my, my point is that anytime, if you work at Lowe's as a manager and you've got 60 people working under you, not all 60 people are going to be good people. Right. And, and I think people forget that. Yeah, but here's the thing about it is that when you have in your public and your brand is so big and there's all the social media and there's money to be made, you can't it, you can't do that. And then alone, let alone, you shouldn't be doing that. I think when you're when I raise my kids, when I'm raising my kids, I tell my my kids don't ever strike a woman. Uh, if you make a mistake, you gotta face the consequences. And yeah. there's gotta be consequences. And some of these guys, there hasn't been enough consequences because they just keep doing the same thing over and over. Well, and, and I think the problem falls more with high schools and colleges because when you're a star athlete, you're allowed to do whatever you want from about the age of 12 or 13 on. And it's real hard well, to go to the NFL and then try to change it also. Well, look, look, at, look at Baylor. And that's a great example of our yeah. everything that's gone on there. If I was, if I was, if I were, if I was a Baylor alum, alum, I would be really pissed off right now because now all of a sudden, Everything that that school is built, it's a beautiful campus. If you drive past it, they got that beautiful stadium. they got a beautiful campus. And everything that you've built and everything you've done, now it's just tarnished because yeah. it's a football program. Because, you know, our Bryles, he seemed like a good guy, but when you're that negligent and you're not, you're not punishing, there's no punitive damage for these players, and you continue to let them just do what the hell they want to do, that's like that's like being a, a bad parent, okay? You seem, you you continue to let your kids do the same thing, then they're going to continue to to do as, as much as they can get away with. But we're talking about guys breaking the law, you know. And you could talk about other schools, uh, and and you could, even Oklahoma. I mean, there's been incidents where they they've dropped the ball in some of the decisions they've made with their players. Hey, there's, I love no school, there's almost no schools that are innocent in the matter. Every school. and But when you're talking about someone sexually assaulting a young lady, and they're like, okay, well, we'll get to that. And not even taking yeah. it serious and finding out that. I mean, there's got to be accountability. And that's the thing that people, that's what people understand is these players, it's a, it's a, it, it tarnishes everything that they've done great. We're talking about, we're talking about Baylor. We're talking almost like the death penalty because I don't think that I don't think they overcome this. No, I mean, but you, I will give them credit for this. I didn't think they'd fire Bryles. Well, I mean, I, I, it sounds like they didn't have any choice because no. they did a they did an independent, uh, I guess, uh, investigation with another law firm. What I understand, and then they went in and did their due diligence. And said, "Man, you, I can't believe this guy's still the still the coach here." Now, tell me this. If the coach, if it's that bad and the coach is fired, how bad must it have been? Pretty damn bad, right? <laughs> Probably even worse than what we know. But, well, yeah, they're paying him six million dollars. Meanwhile, look how much look look what he, our Biles built that stadium, RJ RG three, all this program under his watch and everything he's done. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars that he's generated, that that football program has generated to to just come to this. And you cannot, and, and that's the thing about it. I think I disagree with what Kurt Bergstreet about them being a Darth Vader. 
I don't think they wanted to be the Darth Vader. I think that they just got to the point where winning was everything. Yeah. Winning was everything. Well, I mean, Baylor hadn't been very good since the mid-'80s when Grant Tafe was there. Or Taff. Yeah. I but mean, to take it to another level. 20, 30 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. And, and to look where they've been vogue now, where they've been top, ranked in the top ten, where kids want to go to Baylor because of the uniforms, because of this, their offense, their, their flamboyant offense. I mean, what kid doesn't want to go and catch, you know, run in that kind of offense, a quarterback? I mean, that's the, that's the highway to, a, you know, a great college career if you're, you're getting that system. And then, yeah, just to sacrifice all that just because a player is a star athlete. And I, I get that. Look, I mean, you can go out and you can drink and, you know, guys are going to make mistakes. But when it comes to those type of mistakes, there's got to be zero tolerance, doesn't there? Yeah. And doesn't there got to be some accountability? I mean, and think about Art Boros. Look what, look, I mean, I don't feel bad for the guy, but think about this. He's making, he was making $6 million a year. And that's the problem, I think, too, is that they empower these coaches. They give them – they're the face of the franchise. All of a sudden, they're, they're that franchise quarterback. They're the Aaron Rodgers of the team. They're the LeBron James. They're the guy. Because they're, they're, they're the ones that technically – they're the ones that get paid all the money. They raise the money. They go out and recruit. They win. And, and winning in a football program generates money. All of a sudden, you know, things like this. Have, look what Art Briles lost. And, yeah, he yeah. may get a job somewhere else. But, no, I mean, he, it's going to be a long time before he gets it. Well, yeah, I, you man, know what a bad thing is, Tony? He probably will get a job somewhere else. Well, yeah, he, he, he will. And, but I just think, I mean, you look at, look at the deal with Penn, the, the whole the, the, the tragedy with Penn State. Now, yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's kind of hard to draw parallels, but it's the same thing. But yeah, Baylor, people putting their heads in the sand, ignoring something that should not have been ignored. And Baylor continued to capitalize on these players that had no, no punishment, should have been in jail, right? Yeah. And they're out there playing. And I mean, how do you how do you rest your morals on that? And look, I don't judge people because man, I got so much. I, I, I look, I, I'm just not in the game. But I mean, when it comes to that, how do you how do you not become judgmental and you just like like fire all of them? Well, I, I think the problem with society today is a lot of people put money ahead of morals. Oh, absolutely. I mean, come on. Look, look you got Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as your choice for president. <laughs> I mean, how much worse could this country get? <laughs> Unless they Depends let Charles Manson out and Depends let him run for president. Or Democrat. <laughs> huh? uh, I just it depends on if you're a Republican. Or oh, it, it just can't get worse. Either, either way, I mean, it's uh, the, the whole society is falling apart. There's no morals anywhere. You know, you, 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 the loudest person usually wins anymore. Well, it's a sensationalism. It's like it's like the uh, you know reality TV. Yeah, look at everything is reality things, TV. Right. Look look how things change. People, you know, there's people that are angry that don't have a voice with Donald Trump. And, I mean, some of the things that he's saying, I agree with him. And, you know, some things with Hillary Clinton I agree with, but some things I don't. But the bottom line is that when you're morally able to get away with stuff and still be successful, yeah, that's really not not teaching us anything. But you know what? I have to, you have to draw a line in the sand when you're talking about sexual abuse. Yeah. I mean, to me, there's got to be, look, I mean, we, we all know we all make mistakes, but, 
when you're actually raping a woman, punching a woman, or doing something that, you know, I mean, isn't that what we teach our kids not to do? But then we're enabling them. And so, but it all comes down to, hey, we need to win. Because every, every win that we have up there, a national championship, I'd like to do a research on what a national championship, monetarily, what that means to a university. Let's say Oklahoma. Oklahoma's won seven national championships, right? I think something like that. Yeah. I would like to go back and see how much revenue that's generated from here, from when they first won that national, go all the way back to even now. I'd like to see how much one of those national championships is worth. Well, that's why you get so many small schools that don't have football programs all of a sudden throw a lot of money towards a football program. Right. And that's how I mean, that's there, there's a school up here that's a Christian school university that just started a college football program, but they're starting to play next year. But I don't know if this has anything, if the two have anything to do with each other, but I think they do. But they're getting ready to start a football program, play next year the first time, and they just laid off, fired 32 teachers. Yeah. Now it's, hey, it's, 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 it's a, it, it sets a precedent of every program. I mean, look at Texas. I mean, I live in one of the – I mean, Texas is a great place. I mean, it, it, you know, my kids, I mean, they go to a great school. And it's Friday night lights. I mean, they don't have the Friday night team. But all these schools are amazing how much money is generated through taxes, you know, to, for them to – excuse me, to to be able to afford uh, great facilities. Um, but the bottom line is that that's a sacrifice these schools make. And it's kind of sad that that's the way it is. And then – you know, if you're if you're someone that like myself that doesn't agree with it, or you're you say something, I mean, people it'd be ama- it's amazing how many people will stick up for the immoral thing that some of these schools do. Yeah. Just because you have you have no, just because you either you went to school there, you're a great player there, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is my opinion, I don't agree with that, and all these people are like defending someone's someone's sins. And I don't understand that because all at the end of the day, all that matters is is my team winning. Unfortunately, I don't. I'll forget. I you know. I don't want to hear that. I'm, I'm watching TV. I'm, I'm in an episode of uh, House of Cards. Don't bother me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so is that show that good? I haven't watched it yet. Everybody tells me it's good. <laughs> you know, I think I think I think if Hillary or Donald, Donald Trump can be elected. I think uh, Frank Underland and Claire Underwood could be the first, the president, the first lady. <laughs> <laughs> They're that bad, huh? <laughs> uh, no, it's not that bad. Just, I, I, I love the show, but it's mindless stuff. That's the stuff that you watch. Uh, you watch shows, and you don't have to think about all the reality aspects of it. <laughs> yeah, but any more reality is not even reality. So what the hell? <laughs> That's right. Good. Hey, Tony, thanks for coming on the show. Great to have you on. What are you doing nowadays? You know what? I'm actually in, uh, in the media. I'm uh, doing some local radio here in Dallas and uh, TV and continue to do that, do some brand ambassador for different companies. Uh, so I stay pretty pretty busy. All right. Well, I, it was an honor to have you on the show. I mean, anytime you get a guy that was named the best college football player the entire <laughs> decade in the 1980s, that's pretty good. Oh, just don't say which decade. Well, I mean, you know, that's when I was going to high school, so I'm pretty much as old as you, so I don't like to bring it up that much either. I just like hey, to remind myself to... there are people as old as me. And actually, I think you're a couple years older than me because I graduated from high wow. school in 87. So, 
it's so funny because when you're on when you're on Twitter, I had someone say you you're just trying to be relevant. I'm like, uh, so everyone, everyone anyone that's on Twitter that that has a a Twitter handle and makes comments, it's trying to be relevant. Well, I guess I just have to sign me up for that. <laughs> I think Twitter's stupid, anyways. We just put it yeah. on there for the radio show, and people follow it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. But hey, thanks again, Tony, for coming on. Anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome. Hey, thanks a lot, and I uh, look forward to following, continue to follow, and keep up the great work. Work, and I again, it's all about the grueling truth. All right, thanks a lot, Tony. All right, bye bye. All right, guys, make sure you check us out at thegruelingtruth.net. You can follow us on Twitter, at Grueling Truth. Uh, make sure you go check out our sponsor, www.gridironmode.com. So, for Tony Casillas, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.